Hey, folks, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential, episode 89. I am here with the most intelligent, witty, clever, possibly a murderer in disguise. We don't know because she's so good at hiding <laughs> her true self, Dr. Shiloh. Hi, Dr. Shiloh. My true self. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good here in the, the pre. What is it that's so big tomorrow? It's that thing every year that's like a big... Scott! Where the guys... Super Bowl. It's in Los Angeles. Is that like... Yeah, it's so it's like an all... (laughs) It's like two all-male ballet companies going at it, right? Ooh. (laughs) Don't (laughs) go anywhere near LA or downtown or anywhere tomorrow. Yeah, we're still waiting to see if we're going to get like a trucker protests happening but it hasn't happened oh, yeah. so far we'll see Canadian but everybody welcome trucker. back seriously welcome back we've got a, a show this week on that has been suggested by one of our listeners we'll get to that in a second what housekeeping do we have Dr. Um, Shiloh? i think we're just gearing up for crime con you know me i like to plan for traveling way in advance even yeah. if it's just a four-hour road trip so you can still use the code confidential to get passes get 10% off your pass. Please do that. We would love to see you. There's no excuse that all of you folks in LA or Southern California can't go to Vegas and we would love to meet up with you. So yeah, we're we're getting excited for that. I told Scott, we got to maybe like jump on a TikTok bandwagon and film a bunch of stuff while we're there. <laughs> Try not to break a hip while we're doing it. And you're trying to get me to have some enthusiasm about it. And I'm just like, oh, TikTok, really? <laughs> He doesn't have the energy for that. It's certainly not an identity thing because God knows like all of our information is out on the web anyway. Like why are people so afraid of TikTok? It's like, believe me, they've already got all your information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think that's it. That's all that's going on. Okay, cool. So here we are. Today's show is Parental Alienation Syndrome. And the title of the episode is Parental Alienation Syndrome isn't a thing except that it is, well, sort of. It's such a such a Dr. Scott title. Thanks that I have to type that when I'm posting this episode. <laughs> it totally, totally is. But look, bear with us because it is a lot of info about a particular set of behaviors that are significantly and negatively impacting the lives of parents and their children. And the term, which is used in court settings and in treatment attempts, has changed. And there's just been this sort of labyrinthine journey of calling a set of behaviors a diagnosable term, which it's not, but there's a movement to make it that, but there's controversy. It's all sorts of stuff. And thank you to our listener and Instagram follower, Sarah, for suggesting this. Uh, This was something that it's one of the reasons I completely moved away from doing family mediation as a Mm. forensic psychologist. I was invited to do further training with one of my professors when I was completing my doctorate because my final project for that class was we, we all got a separate case and we had to write it up. And he came to me and said... I don't know how you know how to do this, but (laughs) you can make a lot of money. Do you want to come? And I was like, no, I do not. Yeah. This is ugly, ugly stuff. Yeah. I'm going to lean very heavily on you for this because of just your family systems background. And I have never done any family therapy. I didn't even do couples therapy until nearly five years ago when I came into the job that I'm doing now. Yeah. But it's definitely the the behaviors, the dynamics that we're talking about today are things that I hear horror stories about that I not necessarily with couples because they're way past that at that point, but with at least one party. I'm hearing about this stuff happening and it's terrible. 
It's, it it's is awful it, as if divorce isn't awful enough. It's of course, I mean, you're, you're uprooting a part of your life. You are going to be mourning and ending and transforming a big part of your life. And then if kids are involved, it takes it to a completely different level. And we will certainly explore more of what happens, but what we see in this phenomenon, whatever name you choose to call it is we see a lot of adults making very immature choices yeah. about their behaviors and sometimes leading to very, very bad ends, which we will discuss in two particular cases. Yep. So trigger warning, we're going to be touching on parasite, um, murder of a parent by a child, and then alleged sexual abuse of a child. We will be talking about those things in some of our case examples, but not our main case here today. However, I want to start with an example that most everyone remembers. And in 2007, an actor we recently referred to in right. our other episode about moral injury, Alec Baldwin, he was involved in a parenting fail that I'm sure he would prefer faded into the background, but here we are digging it on. Up again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Alec Baldwin left a voicemail message for his teenage daughter, Ireland, that was released on the internet and truly went viral. The tone and content of this message was severe. And in it, Baldwin can be heard verbally assaulting his daughter in a way that is definitely not passing approval by any metric of good parenting. Absolutely. He went on an apology tour of sorts, appearing on The View and Larry King with the declaration that his ex-wife, Kim Basinger, had set him up by engaging in parental alienation practices to tank his relationship with Ireland. And Baldwin asserted that he'd be writing a book to illuminate his experiences as a parent, particularly a father. And he also took the position that he represented many men who've been alienated from healthy relationships with their children due to the actions of children with parental alienation syndrome, or PAS, as we will not be saying that full mouthful Right. throughout this episode. But what Baldwin did was that he evaded responsibility for his behavior and language by positioning himself as a victim of his ex-wife. Yeah, but wait, there's more. And, and just as a slight correction, Ireland at the time was 11 years old. So she was, she was young. In 2007, Alec Baldwin had separated from his wife, Kim Basinger. Ireland was 11 years old at the time. According to reports, there was a standing commitment for him to be able to speak with her during this very contentious separation. So it was about child custody and, and access to your child. And in the voicemail message that Baldwin delivered out of control, or in the message that Baldwin delivered, like you said, it was very severe language. It was a very angry barrage at his daughter. He screamed, he yelled, he called Ireland a rude, thoughtless little pig for not picking up the call at the designated and reserved call time. The recording was released to TMZ and it quickly went viral. So when all this went down, like you said, he basically went out and said that he was driven to the edge by parental alienation. Mm. And that was his quote, driven to the edge by parental alienation after he had split with Basinger. But now years later, just in the last few months, Ireland is now an adult. She and Baldwin, her father, have publicly discussed the event to the point of even downplaying and kind of uh, poking fun at it in mm -hmm. a roast. In 2019, Ireland took place in a televised roast of Baldwin, appearing to now find the event kind of funny. And in previous interviews, Ireland has asserted that the public exaggerated the event and, quote, made it out to be 
a way bigger deal than it was, unquote. Now, framing her father's actions as born out of frustration, Ireland asserts that it was not a big deal for her and she apologized for not having her phone with her at the time. She was 11. She was 11. She was 11. She should apologize for nothing. Exactly. So, look, I completely respect the now adult Ireland's decision to move forward with her life. Yeah. However, a parent has a responsibility of engaging in healthy and appropriate interactions with their child that are appropriate to the situation. It is not healthy, supportive, or well-informed of a parental move to speak to a child in this way. Just right. It just isn't. So let me start by giving a definition of this alleged syndrome. First, real quick, let me cover just the term syndrome itself, because I feel like we throw out, you know, disorder, syndrome, phenomenon, right. and there's some stuff in the DSM and there's some stuff that isn't. So the technical and correct definition of syndrome is, quote, a set of medical signs and symptoms, end quote, that are correlated with each other. So these symptoms are then associated with a particular disease or disorder, which is the more formal categorization of the flurry of behaviors that are together or symptoms. And a key point here is that when a syndrome is paired with a definite cause, then it becomes the disease or the disorder. So for example, a correct use of the word syndrome is something we've been discussing in terms of post-traumatic stress, right? So we're leaning towards post-traumatic stress syndrome rather than post-traumatic stress disorder. Also, there's some stigma tied there of, you know, someone feels like they are disordered rather than it being a syndrome. But in terms of parental alienation, the term keeps getting used inaccurately because it does not meet these definitions or criteria. And for the reasons you're going to discuss and probably talk about in this next hour and a half. Right. So thank you. The term parental alienation syndrome is a disorder, allegedly, that was researched and developed in 1985 by a Dr. Richard Gardner. Now, he asserted that parental alienation syndrome emerges mainly in the context of child custody disputes. Interesting. And then it develops into the child's unjustified negative beliefs about one of the parents. Right. So PAS contains, allegedly, three core elements. We're going to be saying allegedly a lot. (laughs) Number one, rejection or denigration of a parent that reaches the level of a campaign. So like it's It's persistent. It's not merely just an occasional episode. It's an ongoing thing. Number two, the rejection is unjustified. For instance, the alienation is not a reasonable response to the alienated parent's behavior. And three, it's a partial result of the non-alienated parent's influence. So if any of these three elements is absent, then the idea from Dr. Gardner is that the term PAS is not applicable. Mm. He then goes on to list eight symptoms that distinguish a child affected by PAS from a child who is experiencing just an adverse reaction to an estranged parent during separation or divorce. And those eight things are, one, relentless denigration of the targeted parent, So the targeted parent basically can do nothing right from tying their shoes to how they hold a glass of water is the example given. Two, there's a frivolous, weak, or absurd rationale for the denigration. Reasons given often include things as frivolous as dad wears khaki pants or he doesn't ride bikes with me. Three, a lack of guilt or embarrassment about the whole situation. So the child shows no remorse or shame, acts with complete justification for how they're treating that parent or 
talking about them. All those behaviors are completely justified and almost concrete in the child's behavior. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Four, there's a lack of ambivalence, such as the child considers one parent to be entirely good and the other parent to be entirely bad. Five, there's automatic support for the alienating parent in any conflict, which kind of goes with all good or all bad. Six, there's hostility toward and refusal of contact with the extended family of the targeted parent. So shutting off a lot more than just the parent, their family as well. The presence of borrowed scenarios in which the child uses the same language as the alienating parent when describing their aversion to the targeted parent. And then eight, finally, the child's insistence that he or she is expressing his or own opinions about that parent. So it might, with these last two, it's like you'll hear language coming out of a child and you're like, mm, that's not, just, yeah. Uh, that's a, like them, right? Yeah, that's the perfect example because it's usually either not age appropriate or it's outside the child's vocabulary. I've even seen cases where I, anecdotally in my experience of witnessing this and unfortunately in people that were friends that were separating or divorcing, you'd hear the kids say something and go, wait, I've heard so-and-so say that same totally. phrase before. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And this can be hard, like if, especially when we're talking about sexual abuse of a child. Oh yeah. Because those are things they don't know anyway. So I think it can be hard to distinguish of like what is going on here. But I also thought like just quickly, very briefly, because I know this is off the cuff, but can you sort of, as, as we're trying to see what these behaviors are, how does this differ from like a triangulation situation with a family? Well, okay, good example. Triangulation is where you pit two people against each other in order to get your needs met. So triangulation would be, I mean, the most classic example, like a parental triad, parent, parent, child, Mm -hmm. would be mom didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm going to go to dad. You're triangulating, and then they find out that they've both been (laughs) manipulated by their child. So right, got it. Yeah. Or there's also splitting is another one where. Like either now splitting actually would have a parallel with parental alienation because splitting would be where actually the parent is splitting against the other parent of like, do you know what your dad said about you? Or do you know what your mom said about you? Well, Mm -hmm. you know, your mom has been drinking a little bit and we got to take care of her, but you know, she really loves you. But like, you know, if she ever touches you, you let me know. So like sort of laying landmines and I'm giving very broad examples, but that would be the difference between splitting triangulation and parental alienation syndrome, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then those points that thank you for being so concise with those points, because those literally come from Dr. Gardner's original research along with the examples. So that's great. Can we say, can we say research in air quotes too? Yeah. Alleged research. Alleged research. That's uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of air quotes. Before we tear that apart. <laughs> <laughs> so look, it has been almost 40 years since Gardner made those assertions and In that time, PAS is not recognized or accepted in the diagnostic, psychological, psychiatric, or medical communities. The important part here is that there has been no well-controlled empirical research studies that can confirm this alleged phenomenon, nor has a standardized assessment process and specific diagnostic criteria been established. Now, all of that being said, I am not saying that something similar does not happen. It clearly does. What Dr. Shiloh and I are saying today is that this is an example of a slippery slope of placing a label or diagnosis on something 
and then it metastasizes into something else where right. it shouldn't. It should be kept very specific to what it is. Clearly, there are a lot of questions concerning the syndrome's ethical and use in the family court system due to issues like admissibility and reliability, even though the negative effects that are supposedly aligned with parental alienation syndrome, they all focus on child custody cases. They're always about child custody cases. So here we are, you know, you're our listeners out there and we're telling you it is this thing, but it's not what it says it is, but it really is, sounds a lot like what people say it is, but it's not that thing. And it all, yeah. I know, which is, <laughs> there's a reason that we need to be careful about doing that. Uh, about, you know, being flippant with these kind of diagnoses. Gardner developed this theory, in air quotes, theory, based mm -hmm. on anecdotal observations that he had experienced while he was employed as a paid consultant in the court system. So already what I want us to be gearing towards as we listen to this, as, as we're talking, is understanding that there's already bias. And we're going to be talking about a lot of bias in these, but there's already not, bias. Not that consultants shouldn't be paid for their time. No. Right. But when it's one factor, when we go, oh, there's no RCT studies for this. There's no assessment procedure for this. This is just based on his anecdotal experience. It's all of these factors that start building a house of cards. Exactly. That's why I liked that word when, you know, in researching this, that it was very clearly stated that there is no empirical research done on this. It's all anecdotal. And it gets very problematic when it's anecdotal, even though I just shared anecdotal experience a second ago. Mm -hmm. So he... At when he was working as the paid consultant, his job was to evaluate men who were charged with sexually abusing their children. So very serious charges, right? And very important to get all of the information absolutely correct. In essence, this syndrome, as it were, was the emergence of a legitimate disorder in children that occurred pretty much exclusively in court and mediation child custody proceedings, like I said before. Mm -hmm. So here's this thing that's happening, but then he's got this specific group of men who have been accused of doing something really horrific. But then that, you know, you and I having worked in, in that area of evaluation, you much more than I did, immediately understand it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to slow this whole process down because that is a whole disorder in itself yeah. that generally those perpetrators are incredible liars. Like they are really, really good at hiding the truth of what they've been doing, wouldn't you say? Yes. I mean, malingering is a huge problem with whoever is going to be evaluating them for whatever reason. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 navigating through... The truths and the lies, and when you're an assessor of any sort, especially pretrial, at least after they've been convicted, it's like, okay, some of them will, you know, more will come clean because it's already said and done. Right. But when you're fighting to not go to prison or be found guilty of this behavior pretrial, you lie your ass off. Exactly. A simple way to put it. So, and, and what I find is interesting, it's like, we don't have a body of even anecdotal work coming forth from anyone else. So, you know, is this Gardner kind of believing the bullshit that he's being fed and then saying, oh, let me explore this. Yeah. Of course, we're not hearing it from anyone else. Right. So I, I think I would add to what you were saying that aside from there not being research, empirical research, that the syndrome has also been dismissed by the American Psychiatric Association 
the American Psychological Association and the American Medical Association because it lacks supporting empirical or clinical evidence, and it is not included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's also not in the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, which is a similar thing as to the DSM. Right. It's just more different diagnoses, and it's used worldwide. So more on Gardner's theory, and again, like that's what we're going to call it here. Basically, it asserts that in PAS, that one parent programs or brainwashes the child to despise the other parent. And unsurprisingly, Gardner asserted that the programmer was always the mother and the alleged perpetrator of whatever abuse sort of came to light was always the father. So in other words, he's not saying anything else other than these roles only going one way. You're only evaluating men in these court cases. You're only evaluating men who have been accused of sexual crimes against children Right. So you're coming up with this theory from this very, very small data pool. Right. And yes, men are perpetrating these crimes more. And it goes, True. especially in the 80s, like, you know, there was no, it was very rare that sexual abuse of a mother against her children was probably even getting its way through the court system. But there had to be some cases and that would right. have been appropriate for him to seek out and find. But the theory goes on that the programmed child then continues to loathe and demonize or fear the father. So we're seeing the problems here, right? Yeah, a lot of problems. The there. gender issues, the, yeah. Right. And there, I think what you just said really points out that there is a lot here that's super problematic. And for me, what I think is probably the worst is the intentionally vague and somewhat obscure diagnostic criteria for parental alienation syndrome, that it serves to shift this spotlight from the alleged abusing a parent to the child as a victim. And once this paradigm or this particular framework has been set up, which basically means all negative statements made by the child about the other parent, which is usually the dad, become evidence of alienation by the custodial parent, which is usually the mom. So we're getting into a real like gender bias yep. issue, which is so problematic that and it, like in reading the research for this, and if you guys look at our citations, I like I read like 60 articles <laughs> that were fascinating. And about 10 of them were all by attorneys that specialize in this kind of work. And even one interview with an attorney who got out because she was so worn out by it. Oh, like that it's such, so toxic. And there's a reason for that because I think that there's a drive behind the parents getting into it the way they get into it. But well, and you know, what we're, we're also seeing here is Okay, so we have this syndrome label that's developed. And what are we doing? We're labeling it, we're slapping it onto the kid, right? Instead of, it's it's like Stockholm Syndrome. Because they had a trauma reaction, we're now pathologizing the victim. Exactly. Not the perpetrator. So exactly. that in and of itself is like the big, big problem here. So in this case, confirmation bias serves to obscure what's really happening in the parent-child relationships and can easily incorrectly influence the cases of domestic violence and sexual abuse that they see in the family court system. Remember, confirmation bias is essentially our tendency to search for particular information or interpret information in such a way that supports our own values that are already there, our value system. And confirmation bias goes so far as to also impact our memories as well. Very, very impactful. And even for people who 
work at critical thinking and criticizing their own behaviors. Confirmation bias is a constant representation and push through of our ego drive, you know, because it's a like a survival mechanism, but it can be really toxic in today's world. You know, what's clear here is whether Gardner intended it or not, that the sole intent of PAS is to pathologize behaviors in children and mothers. Mm-hmm. Not to explain the difficult navigation that children have to attempt in order to have normal relationships with their parents after a divorce. It really shifts Mm -hmm. the focus away in a a terrible, terrible direction. Right. Think of all the the effort if you put everybody into treatment instead of focusing on that is the issue and focusing on just what's happening. Like you said, the normal relationships and the normal things that follow a divorce. The PAS implies that when mothers make the allegation that their child's not safe with the child's father, that they are doing so falsely in order to alienate the child from their father. Like it's a tactic. They're lying as a tactic to keep the child. PAS labeling often results in dismissal of both women and children's reports of abuse and sometimes will negate even professional expert Mm. child abuse evaluations. And Dr. Gardner was a professional and it sounds like, you know, he was being swayed in a certain way as well. But we see, yeah, that that even experts are being, their evaluations aren't being taken seriously because of this pseudoscience. The history of PAS clearly outlines that it's based on negative stereotypes of mothers. We know that. And thankfully for that reason, it has been widely discredited. However, we've seen the term shift to just parental alienation in a weird way to try to not genderize it. I guess, I don't know, syndrome means women. It's a woman's problem. (laughs) But try to make it more gender neutral, but it's still being used inappropriately in ways that are exactly the same as PAS. Right. I have a feeling in looking at some of the latest research that that shift from PAS to just PA has to do with weight, As an attorney, I may not be able to complete the duties that are put upon me as my responsibilities as representing this client if some expert is going to come in and say, syndrome doesn't exist. So I'm just going to call it this. Maybe they feel, I think that there's an indication that moving towards dropping that syndrome will then alleviate them of having to prove it as a a syndrome or whatever. Just a behavior rather than a, a disorder. I think. I mean, maybe PA is more gender neutral and avoids responsibility of meeting the threshold for a syndrome. Yeah. And it it has continued to be used successfully in many court cases. So regardless of the fact that there's an absence of consistent empirical and clinical evidence that PA or PAS exists, even notable indications of the alienating parent's behavior is the actual cause of the child's animosity towards them as a targeted parent it will continue to be used by forensic psychologists, parent coordinators, and lawyers with multiple, quote-unquote, expert witnesses squaring off on the stand. So Mm -hmm. literally, you've got psychologists on both sides. You've got coordinators on both sides, attorneys on both sides, experts, hired guns on both sides, each taking a very different stand on whether or not this is actually happening or whether or not this actually exists. Jennifer Holt, who's a legal scholar and attorney, she generated her own comprehensive review of study of PAS being used in the courtroom. And what she found was clear evidence that there was ongoing use of PAS in the court system 
not because there's a higher incident of mothers interfering with custody rights, but rather that it is now regularly used as a legal tactic by attorneys to win custody for fathers, despite their documented history of domestic violence, including child abuse. So it's just trending. Right. But thank, I mean, but what I like about this is Holt actually went and did some empirical research right. and found out like, okay, maybe there's none of these behaviors happening at all, but parents are absolutely willing on both sides to square right. off and start making those kind of accusations. Not just mothers. Yeah. So it, what mm. ends up happening is that parents, you know, the parents abuse their children now have more access to them, sometimes sole custody. And that has been shown is like it, in, in some very bad examples of parents getting custody of their children and then continuing the abuse. Yeah, Thankfully, me, very rare. Well, let me talk a little bit about the research that that looks at that a little bit more deeply. Okay. The New York family court system was investigated for this phenomenon, and it was revealed that the process of family court can re-traumatize abused mothers by forcing them to face in person the mm. men that they fear. So this is common, you know, domestic violence, yeah. making them wait out in the hallway, be in court with, with these perpetrators that have some really intense fear tactics. And the findings went on to show that 37% of the time, custody ends up being granted to the abusers. Now, not that's not a majority. It's not overwhelming, but that's a lot, 37%. Yeah. So the the judges, that what they think is going on is the judges appear to be attempting to, quote unquote, repair the damage that they think they are seeing caused by PAS, and then the judge's eagerness to repair or even punished the now alleged alienating parent completely ignores immediate and potential long-term damage to the child. Like, it's like, you you don't need to write this wrong, judge. Like, what is best for the child? Right. (laughs) Really. There was a, a study in 2019 that looked at outcomes in court in child custody cases. And that study found that when mothers claimed any type of abuse, if fathers responded by claiming parental alienation, then the mothers were twice as likely to lose custody as when the fathers did not claim that. So essentially, the study very starkly says, concludes, that this leads to a system where alienation trumps abuse. That's the message that's being sent when we do this. Wow. June Carbone, she's a family law professor at the University of Minnesota. She further describes the really troubling nature of what this study found. And I like her quote here. She says, quote, it shows the power of the shared parenting idea. An abuse allegation rejects the possibility of shared parenting. Parents who allege alienation by the other parent cloak themselves in the mantle of the shared parenting norm and judges reward them even if the other parent is an abuser. End quote. That is just jarring. You always want to be comforted by your assurance in authority figures that go into a certain field because they want to uphold truth, justice in the American way or whatever. And then you hear of judges doing things like this. And like I've seen some, believe me, I've, I've witnessed some amazing judges that go through very complex cases and disentangle these multiple conflicting narrative threads in order to find the justice. And then you find others that are like just sort of off the cuff, not thinking about that are challenging, challenging attorneys to fight. Yeah. See that that viral. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to pull a quote from criminal rewards, the impact of parental alienation syndrome on family. 
And this, I think, is helpful to give a, a historical and contextual background is I think that even before PAS, courts and defendants in custody and abuse cases were beginning to use an alienation of affection tort. This is an old tort that allowed husbands to sue men with whom their wives had committed adultery, charging them with alienating the husbands from the affection of their wives. The only states where this lawsuit can still be brought are Hawaii, Illinois, Mississippi, New Mexico, North Carolina, South Dakota, and Utah. Oh my God, it's still a thing? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) insane. Right. I mean, some states have replaced this claim with intentional infliction of emotional distress, you know, or found other terms. Part of the problem is that there's not enough people in power challenging PAS is what the writer says. It's somehow serving the status quo. And I think that it is mostly about the money generated for mental health, social services, and legal communities that are going unchecked. I don't know how much I, uh, I'm aligned with that, but it's an interesting point. Then goes on to say, since 1985, the claim of parental alienation syndrome has represented the extreme collusion of male entitlement, the mental health profession, and family courts. Completely mm. can see that. I can mm-hmm. completely agree with that. Goes on to say, PAS is a pseudoscientific theory used to prevent battered women from protecting their children from exposure to violent and abusive fathers. It asserts that children who resist parents' visits are not legitimately seeking protection from their fathers, but have been alienated from their fathers by their mothers. Do you think this is also sort of a phenomenon of like the pendulum swinging from mothers always getting the benefit of the doubt and fathers really having no rights for a very long time to children? Yeah, it has to to be. Just like crazy. Yeah. I, I just, I really feel like the, just the systemic stuff that we're talking about has to be that pendulum swing. Yeah. I have a, I have a coworker that has a, a similar experience and clearly the pendulum swung against her and what the stuff that she puts up with on a, on a daily basis is like shocking to me. Like, yeah. and you just have oh. to, the only way to survive it is get through it. You have to push through. And what I always admire about people that I see going through this, that are parents is the ones who somehow find the fortitude and the integrity and the discipline to be non-reactive because that's all you can do. I know. You can't react to the child because the child is, sometimes the child is being manipulated. You can't react to the allegations because that further takes your power away if you show any sort of volatility at all. This is what I talk about with clients all the time. And it's like, keep your eye on the ball of being best version of yourself for your kid because eventually the kid's going to be old enough to be able to figure out like what yep. who feels safe where's the stability and it may be many years especially before a, a kid can realize oh my god like one parent was doing that and this was the safe place to be this is where i felt better so is it really a syndrome we've kind of debunked that but should it be considered as one not likely but also we we can look into that a little bit more especially cuz there's some mental health professionals that have some thoughts about that that are different from ours. But we say no, right? Because for one, it doesn't match the symptoms and characteristics necessary to actually constitute the definition of a syndrome. We talked about the lack of studies. We talked about the lack of criteria for assessment. However, there's an article that came out just last year in the Journal of Psychiatric Times where psychiatrist Dr. Philip Koziak And Dr. William Burnett state that, quote, thanks to the efforts of a growing number of dedicated mental health and behavioral clinician scientists, 
PA is gaining acceptance as a recognized disorder. So <laughs> disorder, they're, again, they're saying disorder. They're not just saying like a cluster of behaviors. Right, right. So that's that's my issue with it. They also go on to say that it's been proposed and suggested, which lots of things get suggested as basically a search term in the ICD-11, which is the newest version of the ICD that's coming up. And the proposed search term is QE 52.0, Caregiver Child Relationship Problem. So for our listeners, ICD codes are in the DSM as a system of keeping track of diagnoses. And in this case, the quote, caregiver child relationship problem is a really big term that can include a lot of different things aside from just PA or PAS. Anything that would, yeah, anything that would fit in problems between a parent and a child that are reaching the level to where it impairs their quality of life, which would be the sort of that level of diagnoses. I found that article fascinating. So Kosick and Burnett go on to say that the concept of PA that is described in DSM-5, although not listed as a formal diagnosis, that they are asserting that the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the American Academy of Pediatrics have both included discussion of PA in their guidelines for upcoming versions. And a problem here, this is the problem in this article, is that here we have two doctors, two male doctors, and they are writing an article based on an anecdotal situation about a mutual colleague. So a mutual colleague shares his experience of being a full-time doctor making assumptions. And he even admits to this in the article, in the interview with him, he makes a lot of assumptions about family duties and responsibilities regarding child rearing and how he loves his kids. He loves his kids, but Hey, like he was bringing home the bacon. And I just thought we understood what the child rearing responsibilities were, but eventually it leads to further and further distance. Like suddenly he can't hang out with his kids because wife has scheduled all these things. Well, of course, she's probably scheduled all these things because you've been gone 18 yeah. hours a day, right? right? So it leads to a divorce, distancing from his children, and he gets a lot of advice from people to let it go. So there is acknowledged that the focus that a physician has to get on their career, and that can absolutely instigate relationship problems. But in mm-hmm. cases like this, anecdotal case vignettes, there's a lot of information missing. Me being sort of a curious investigator of human behavior with a background in forensics, I'm reading that article. I'm going, what are you not telling me? So you're just saying that you were being the best dad, playing with your kids when you could, but most of the time you were gone. And suddenly they started growing away from me. And like suddenly spanned several years. What could you have done of course. to halt that process, right? Yeah, but also you have two doctors writing a story about their buddy. Like this is as far on the other end of the spectrum from peer review that... Right. Like this is just a tabloid article as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. So it makes me question like, why did you write this? So what was your motivation? And you're saying it is happening. I got to tell you, I pulled a lot of research on this. I'm not sure it is happening though. I think you're wishful thinking that you want this to be put into the DSM. Yeah. Behaviors around divorce happen and they're awful and they're They're shitty and people are horrible human beings and do terrible, terrible things. 
But what is that really? You know, is that an extension of personality disorders? Is that it's so many other things? Right. Why, I mean, why are we doing this? And why are we just calling women crazy, basically? Still? Exactly. And who gets hurt? The kids get hurt. Yeah. You know, it's always the kids. Like if you could just have as your North Star, your kids, I think that would make a big difference. So look, what all the stuff that gets mixed into PA or PAS, whatever the behaviors are that we're talking about, they absolutely do have an effect on the parent who is portrayed as the monster. And there's not always a happy resolution as an adult. So if you get told, like, say, I guess now one thing I thought interesting about this article is he's being told by a minister, you know, you have to using quotes from the Bible of you have to let your heart melt and you, you wait until your child grows up and then they will figure it out. Well, the reality is, is that if you were a crappy parent, and your kids knew you were a crappy parent, then nothing's going to change. You can wait around for 20 years. It's no, they'll figure change. out that you're going to figure parent. out. They may figure out that you're a good parent too. That, that can right. happen as well. But what does happening? So all of the description of these behaviors, the emotional splitting, the manipulation, they do happen. Unfortunately, in many cases of divorce where adults are not acting as healthy and emotionally mature Adults. So they are physical adults, but they're acting like angry toddlers and <laughs> yes. just lashing out at each other. So, like, I just want to build on what you were saying before is while it's not necessarily diagnosable as narcissism, these types of behaviors are absolutely narcissistic in nature by way of that individual's acting out. Yeah. I yeah. want what I want. I want it right now. How are you are a narcissistic extension of me? Why are you not bending to my will? Why are you not giving me what I need? Right, These are right. my children. And then there's a whole thing about being a parent. I'm not a parent, but many people have, yeah, I mean, I, I love kids. And I love my nieces and nephews and having children certainly picks something in our development that is a, a tie to immortality. It is, sure. you know, you are propagating the species, you're carrying on. That is, whether or not you have a spiritual belief system, if there is anything such as immortality, then we know your genetic line being carried on is definitely immortality. So maybe we have a biological imperative to really invest in that. But in cases like this, boy, the actions have gotten really wonky. So when you you developed this this section that we're talking about with narcissism and acting out. I really like this quote that you pulled that sort of sums this up. Quote, such alienating parents often appear to have a close relationship with the child they are hurting. This is interesting. But that closeness may only last as long as the narcissistic parent is getting what they want out of the relationship. When he or she is not, then they may push the child away in a rejecting fashion. Such parents withdraw their love and response for the child not satisfying their emotional needs. For instance, when a child makes a positive remark about the target parent, the alienating parent may ignore or even berate the child in retaliation. I mean, I love that quote, but it hurts. Like it's well, just it's, like the idea that you would do that to a child is right. so awful. But you do see examples of that in people who are narcissists. And I think children, I, I know children can survive this sometimes with no ill effects, but, you know, always keeping your kids dressed in the latest clothes and having the latest toys or going to the best school or giving them things. While those, those are very nice things, they do not in any way, shape or form come anywhere close to being one-on-one -on -one with your child, giving your child attention, sitting on the floor with them, 
playing with them, having talks with them, asking them questions, letting them discover the world through your eyes. That is something that really a a narcissist can't tolerate very well. Mm -hmm. Why would I do this? It's not about me, (laughs) you know? Yeah, they're not getting down on the floor and playing, you know, Legos or games. Exactly. I mean, that particular writer goes on to say that the children who did not have, quote, close relationships with the alienating parent generally pointed to that parent using fear, intimidation, and terror tactics on them and or the target parent. Physical abuse and sexual abuse were also among these tactics, too. Both mothers and fathers were involved in committing these types of abuses to terrorize the children into submission. Many, but not all, of these alienating and abusive parents had substance abuse problems. Hmm. Wow. You know what I find anecdotally <laughs> that is kind of the the way that what I deem narcissistic parents not really engaging with their children. You know, they're like I said, they're not the ones to like get down on the ground and and engage in the silly games that you don't really want to be a part of, but you do it anyway because you're a parent. But what is an easy step away from that for those parents is their phones and their devices. They're always totally tuned out from the kids and just in their little world of their social media. That's how I'm seeing it anyway. I would say anecdotally, I have witnessed the same thing. So got it. I wish I, I wish (laughs) we we call it a syndrome. Let's label it something. (laughs) Narcissistic media. It's got to be a good acronym, something else. I'll I'll, I'll work on it. I'll work on that. So what's the new term? What is now yeah. the new evolving term? <laughs> I like part of me, I know we should just cover this in depth as we do, but part of me is like, oh, why are we saying some of these things out loud and like putting it out into the universe? But yes, a new term has popped up on many divorce attorney websites. And basically it's it's listing the same types of behaviors. It seems like it's a way to get away from the controversy surrounding the term PAS. But basically it's, legal rebranding. And most of the attorneys (laughs) clearly state in very big letters, this is not a syndrome recognized by the DSM or the APA, but we're going to call it one anyway. And it is malicious parent syndrome, even worse. Jeez. So here's an example of the substituted language. Malicious parent syndrome is also not recognized as an actual psychiatric condition by professionals. Instead, it is a label that came about from a psychologist who wished to describe a certain destructive pattern of behavior on the part of one parent toward the other during divorce proceedings. So I'm glad they're pulling it from a psychologist. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, I kind of like it. I mean, I, I do like that last, it's describing a certain destructive pattern of behavior on the part of one parent towards the other. That is very precise. But why why not just say that that parent is being malicious? Like what? I know it's describing how they're behaving, but uh, yeah, why, again, why no, are we no, turning that, it into a syndrome? That's a very good point is it's once again falling into why are you making it a syndrome? They're yeah. just doing shitty things and it's... Right. You know, uh, is it shitty is a, parent syndrome? Yeah, is a diagnosis going to make it any more adjudicatable? <laughs> no, um, and I think system? all it does is it it makes the other parent feel validated in some weird way. Like, oh, well, see, I knew they were being a terrible person, and here's this term for it. I don't well, know. it's weird. It is. I think that what we were reading. I think it's maybe to further 
a legitimate idea that it's possible for a parent to be so focused and intent on revenge and destruction of their partner that they will go as far as breaking the law in order to ruin the other parent's relationship with a child, maybe. So malicious parent behaviors are similar to what Gardner asserted, but they're really geared more towards legal language. And this outlines the parent defying laws. So I can see where it's progressed. I mean, we're, we're pulling this list from a website of the offices of John Merrill. And one of the main points that he brings out, or he's got several, and they're, they are geared towards legal infractions like denying regular uninterrupted visitation on the part of the other parent, denying phone access between the child and the other parent, denying the other parent access to or participation in the child's school or extracurricular events, lying to the child about the other parent, which involves accusations designed to sway the child against the other parent, lying to other people about the other parent to denigrate his or her reputation or perception by them, actually violating the law, such as refusing to obey a custody court order or a restraining order, engaging in endless litigation to punish the other parent. Now, anecdotally, I have witnessed that last one so brutally uh-huh. in a couple that I knew where one had unlimited resources, unlimited oh financial resources. And the only thing uh-huh. that got the judge really pissed off is the judge said, why do you keep coming back here with a different attorney every time? Mm. That's telling me the attorneys don't want to work with you. Right. But he had enough money to keep hiring, keep hiring, keep hiring. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no doubt these things happen and there are people who do every single one of these, I'm sure. But again, we're we're pathologizing it right. in a way that doesn't need to be sort of reinvented. Additionally, regarding malicious parent syndrome, the theory also says that in some very extreme cases, the malicious parent is willing to engage in actions that would actually cause some harm to the child in the hopes that the other parent would be blamed. So they're really taking this to like, the nth degree. This could include engaging in actions also to damage the other parent's property or causing him or her some type of physical harm. Clearly, this is very problematic. And we're not only talking about alleged brainwashing or distorting the child's thought pattern, but we're talking about encouraging acting out behaviors. Right. So, and when we're down that road, we talk about what are the effects, whatever you want to call this syndrome, disorder, whatever, it's going to have effects on the kids. And there is research about kids coming from these type of interactions back and forth between separating and divorcing parents. There's, there is definite evidence of low self-esteem, self-blame, self-hatred, inability to trust or a significant last lack of trust in relationships, depression, anxiety, substance use, and other forms of addiction, including love and sexual compulsivity. In 1996, Kenneth Waldron and David Joan asserted that the long-term adverse effects that parental alienation had on children is that children learn through observing their parent engage in, quote, hostile, obnoxious behaviors, acceptable in relationships, and that deceit and manipulation are normal parts of relationship, end quote. So horrible thing for a child, hopefully with resilience, can figure it out that this is not right. But many times they will find that they're placed in a double bind, right? They're placed like, which parent do I go towards? Which one is the safe harbor? And they're internalizing these things and picking up very bad habits about how to interact with your intimate partner. Yeah, absolutely. 
If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So just some a little bit more about what some other recent studies show. PAS is gender biased in practice and in outcome. A statistical analysis of over 2,000 court opinions over a 10-year span has now been able to verify that courts are doubtful of mothers' claims by fathers because of this term that is thrown out there, this defense tactic, if you will. And the study also shows that fathers cross claims of parental alienation increase, virtually doubling the court's rejection of mother's abuse claims, as well as doubling mother's losses of custody to the father accused of abuse. And when the study contrasted and compared the court responses when fathers accused mothers of abuse, there was a very notable gender difference identified there. So confoundingly and aggravating as well, the study also found that when court-appointed guardians or custody evaluators are appointed, the notable unfavorable outcomes for mothers and gender differences increase. I don't like is, seeing those kind of stats. <laughs> right. I mean, really it's just, disturbing. It, it's like this episode, this topic is just across the board, mental health wise and legal wise is just disturbing on both ends equally, I think. Yeah, I I can't help but go back to how it affects children. Maybe they're understanding that they are being given conflicting information from at least one of the parents. And I guess in the best way that they can do, children will deal with that double bind. They're put in by learning not to trust relationships or develop a really unhealthy level of hypervigilance about trust in yeah. friendships and other relationships. And when we think of the big picture, this is gaslighting. You know, yep. we've talked about gaslighting in other forms of relationships, but this is gaslighting perpetrated by a parent on the child that they supposedly love. But clearly what's happening is the parent uses this child as a narcissistic extension of themselves mm-hmm. in a really desperate attempt to control their ex. It might be from how dare you leave me or how dare you not be the person that I wanted you to be. And I can't get to you, but I can this conduit between us, this child, I can project it onto them and make them be my my hand that goes out and delivers the damage. Like we said before, increased relationship issues, depression, substance abuse. While it's not specifically parental alienation, the research has shown that when there's high conflict between the parents, children are three to five times higher risk of developing juvenile conduct disorders and other emotional disorders. Really, really bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into cases. We've been talking for a long time about what it is and what it isn't, what it might be, but we got a couple of cases we want to jam through as well. Just a couple. You're ready for a doozy? Probably the biggest. um, You got a big one. Yeah. (laughs) One that I could think of. So I'm going to talk about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. And this case was really the first one to sort of bring PAS into the public spotlight with as high conflict and high profile that this separation 
and custody battle was. Since PAS most often arises during child custody disputes following a divorce, particularly when the litigation is prolonged or involves significant antagonism between the parties, I thought it was worth talking about here in relation to this really infamous case. However, we know that this case is about so much more fucked up stuff than we're really going to be able to dive into today. The the child abuse, the power base of celebrity and cognitive dissonance that we have around wonderful artists doing terrible things. So I can't not talk about a little bit of the background, but also we're not jumping into a deep dive into all of that. Allen versus Pharaoh was a top rated documentary from 2021. It's on HBO. Go watch it. It's four, about one hour episodes, especially if you were too young or like this feels like you don't really remember what was happening when that all came to light. Go back. This is a reason I highly recommend it. It's not just the key players talking about it, but it's the people that were around. It's the babysitters. It's the neighbors. It's the friends. It's all the peripheral collateral folks that were witnessing behaviors. So I thought it was done very well and and researched in that way by gathering those people. So Mia Farrow, she was an actress. She started in television at age 18 in the 60s. She married Frank Sinatra as a young woman. They were married for a couple years. Then she did Rosemary's Baby and really like blew up as far as film, doing very high profile films for wonderful directors at the time, had very major co-star. She was in The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford. After she split up from Sinatra, she then got married again. She had several children from previous relationships as well as through adoption. So she had three biological sons with her second husband, and they also adopted three daughters. This was around the time that the Vietnam War ended, and she was very inspired to help and adopt children from Vietnam. Although one of her adopted daughters, Suni, was Korean, and she was a little bit older when she adopted her. She wasn't an infant. And then after she divorced her second husband, she ended up adopting another boy on her own as a single parent and just absolutely loved being a parent, had all of these kids, was still a working actress, and... She ends up starting a relationship with Woody Allen, who is not into having a family, absolutely not into kids. And they kind of decide, you know, she has seven kids at this point, and they sort of decide, well, she's okay with them living separately, her sort of in her adult time away from her kids, having a boyfriend and just living their life like this. And eventually, you know, they go on to a very long-term relationship. And he starts to integrate into the family a little bit more. She has a vacation home that they spend time at in the country, but they never marry and they continue to live live in separate residences. However, she wants to have a baby again. So she approaches him and says, I want to have a baby. Will you have a baby with me? And as he describes it, he kind of looks over his shoulder like, who are you talking to? Because... That's not my jam. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with that. But she says, look, I won't put any obligation on you. You can be as involved as a biological father as you want. Financially, you don't have to take care of these kids. Just, I want you to be the dad, the donor, if you will. Well, they end up having three children together, one adopted, two biological. And Dylan is their first child, a daughter. A family friend describes... Woody Allen's relationship with Dylan as an intensity from the very beginning. And he says he's very smitten once the baby's there to actually be in the role of father. But as she gets older, 
everyone goes on to describe this very hovering behavior. This, even when all the other kids were around and there's family functions, he shuts everyone out. It is just the two of them are really, really intense. Later, as Dylan gets a little bit older, four or five, she starts picking up on the, the smothering effect that he's having on her and the differences with how other kids are with their parents, right? Like she says at one point going to a friend's house, oh, your dad isn't in here playing with you all the time. Like he's just not here with you every single moment. And that's when she started to realize there were differences. And then she starts like running away from him when he will come over. She starts when he enters the room or comes over to the house to visit becoming nonverbal. She would pretend to be an animal. She would pretend to be dead. So she didn't have to converse. Very, very troubling and concerning behavior. And then others start catching some really inappropriate things going on. And others, I mean, by her mom, Mia, babysitters, you name it. Others would catch them in bed together. He's in his underwear. Him with his face in her lap on one occasion when she had no underwear on. And so Dylan, both as a child and as an adult, unequivocally states that there was sexual abuse occurring when she was a child at the hands of Woody Allen. Woody Allen has always denied this, just to put that in there. But when Mia starts as a mom feeling this, seeing some things happen, she starts questioning and accusing. Of course, what does he do? He starts gaslighting her. You know, you're crazy. He makes it about this fatherly affection. And even a neighbor of Mia's who was a therapist, they live in the same building, tells Mia, I have seen some observations in the hallway between Woody and Dylan, and they're concerning. So what Mia does is she tells Woody, will you please go to a therapist? Because I need to exp- I need you to explore what's happening here. I want to be able to say, this might be a just very intense relationship with your daughter, but I need to know what's going on. And these are Mia Farrow's words. So of course, it's not like we have reports from a therapist or anything. But the therapist basically says, yeah, the behavior is inappropriate and it's different, but it's not sexual. He just doesn't know how to have a normal relationship with a child. <laughs> wow. Just whether he was completely snowed, whether he's giving into, again, like the celebrity and the power of this person, trying to excuse it. Maybe he's only working with, you know, of course, what Woody's giving him, as a lot of therapists can only work with what they're given, of course. But it turns out that not that much later, Mia ends up finding a stack of what she calls raunchy pornographic pictures in her home. I don't know if it was her home or Woody's home. I think it was hers. And they were, all the pictures were of her daughter, Suni. So Suni was a college freshman at the time that these photos were found She confronts her with them. She confronts Woody with them. And long story short, we all know that Woody ends up in a relationship with Suni, but in court proceedings, maids and doormen of Woody Allen's apartment said that as far back as her senior year of high school, she was coming over to his apartment on her lunch breaks and that There were semen stains on the bed, condom wrappers found. The maids were told to change the sheets after she left. Some very, very damning information about the inappropriateness of this relationship. Also, like, not even... Well, I mean, I guess maybe that speaks to his complete unawareness of it being wrong. Like, he's not trying to hide the behavior, right? From those people? Yeah. Yeah, or is it well, I'm Woody Allen. Like, of course, you're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. And 
who's going to believe a maid. So I could see that power difference too. Uh, so of course, after this all comes to light, then the, there's one incident that really is very, very problematic that ends up getting reported to a therapist regarding Dylan's abuse. And this ends up going to law enforcement. So this starts the ball rolling with a criminal investigation into the child sexual abuse. And what Alan does is, you know, Mia's a mom to all these children. He famously doesn't really talk to the press that much, but he decides to hold a press conference and essentially starts a smear campaign against her that she's a woman scorned because he's now having an affair with her teen daughter, adult teen daughter at this time. And that because she's a woman scorned about that, that that's why she's accusing him of the sexual abuse all of a sudden. So we hear with this campaign, we hear a lot of her, what we know now is, you know, 1985, Dr. Gardner coined as parental alienation syndrome. And really, Mia decide, has to decide, what do I do? Do I spend all my time sort of defending myself in this? But I also have to be present to my children. I also have a duty just to keep my children safe and be there for them. So it's a, it's a really unequal playing field, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, when we're talking about like how they can sort of go to bat for themselves. The reason I'm mentioning this in relation to PAS is that previously mentioned in our research portion is when allegations of abuse are raised or proven throughout the court process, the notion of shared custody gets totally eliminated for the possibility of custodial outcomes, right? Like all of a sudden when there's abuse alleged custody, doling out custody should sort of stop because there needs to be an investigation and and all of that. And no court would order joint custody arrangements when there's been a child sexual abuse allegation. Essentially, they shouldn't be placing a child with a parent who is alleged of some abuse before it can be investigated. So in response to the allegations and when they come to light in law enforcement in Dylan's case, they determine that after a lot of evaluation, that seven-year-old Dylan really is not a reliable witness and they can't move forward with charges. So Woody Allen then sues Mia Farrow for custody of Dylan and their two other kids. And so one of the studies I quoted earlier, the 2019 study, um, the main author, Joan Meyer, she's featured in this documentary, and she comments directly on how this was a key issue brought up in Allen's defense against Pharaoh. But ultimately, thankfully, Judge Elliot Wilkes in the Supreme Court of New York County found Woody Allen not credible in his claims of PAS against Mia, and he was denied sole custody at that time. And then he appealed a few times. Every time after that, he was denied sole custody. So obviously a very complicated case. The story does get more complicated in that one of Mia's adopted sons, whom later Woody also adopted, he came into the picture. He supports the notion that Dylan was actually brainwashed by Mia. And he has said that as an adult. So it's it's very messy. It's, it's very, very messy with a lot of conflicting alliances amongst yes. the kids. I think we can both agree that regardless of his talent and his output, that there's just a, there's enough there that is really concerning. Oh, I mean, uh, you know, beyond. I want yeah, to give his adopted son the benefit of a doubt and in saying that, but every, there's so much evidence on the other side, just the therapist, just the fact that he had his head in a child's lap 
right. undress that there's there that's full stop. Yeah. Full stop. Absolutely. And there is no adult who doesn't know that that's inappropriate. That is right. That's just a full stop. Yeah. I, I encourage folks to watch the documentary and just see for yourself where you lie in, in all of this. The biggest red flag to me is just straight off the bat, like really what man who doesn't want children of their own or doesn't want to be a father gets involved with a woman with seven little kids. Sorry. Huge. huge it's a big red flag. flag. It's a yeah. huge red flag right there. So Great example, disturbing as hell, but I guess that's what we do here. <laughs> we talk about a lot of disturbing stuff. I have another story. This is from 2004 in Texas. Dr. Rick Lostra, a 41-year-old ER doctor at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, drove to the home of his ex-wife in order to pick up his two biological sons as part of this visitation agreement following their divorce. His then 10-year-old son, known in court records as the initials ECL, entered the backseat of the car with his backpack, pulled out a gun, and shot his father through the backseat of the car several times. ECL then exited the car, ran back into the mother's home. The Lostras were in the midst of what everyone in the neighborhood, everyone at their place of work, knew was a very, very contentious and bitter divorce process. It included multiple calls to local police over a decade, reports of child sexual abuse alleged by Mrs. Lostra as being perpetrated by her ex. Just not a good situation at all. Regardless of where the truth lies in their relationship, it was a bad scene and badly handled by DCF and badly handled by law enforcement, I would say as well. The gun was, yeah, Mm. a 10 year old. And he also had, his brother was in the car as well and witnessed Mm. it. So the gun was taken back into the house by ECL, was later identified as Deborah Lostras. And she claimed that the semi-automatic pistol had been kept locked in its case, along with the ammunition clip in a closet in her room, locked, completely secured, she also asserted to law enforcement that she thought the gun was a 40 caliber weapon, but she wasn't sure. She okay. adamantly stated it was stored, unloaded, and locked with the clip removed. The clip was out of it. So she knows how to care and take care of a gun, but you don't know what kind of gun you've got. I mean, yeah. real inconsistency right yeah. there. Yeah. ECL had been recently diagnosed with depression and anxiety. He had been given a prescription for Prozac, and the prescription amount had been raised the morning of the crime. And that becomes a big point in the trial and the Hmm. attempt to getting a retrial. And there was a lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies, against the prescribing doctor. Prozac is sort of a go-to antidepressant SSRI. If you remember in our last episode, I had discovered the anti-SSRI websites this particular case was all over the anti-antidepression, depressive medication websites. There is no evidence that those two things were connected. The child had been on the starter dose of Prozac and then was being moved up slowly, which is the appropriate way you, you do that. And there's no indication in the research that homicidality would be a result no. of this. It just, it just isn't. It's not going to kick in that fast and it's not going to do anything to it, elicit that sort of behavior. Right. That, that type of medication is a progressive scaffolding medication. Right. It doesn't kick in that quick, but very, very interesting. A psychiatrist had prescribed the Prozac for ECL early in August. After he had been diagnosed, he started with a 10 milligram dose, which is very low and gradually moved to a slightly higher dose However, all of this is anecdotal information via articles quoting Deborah in their interviews, because now she's trying to shift 
you know, my son is not a homicidal maniac. It has to be because of the medication, just right. has to. But she said, well, it must have been the medication because he took his second 90 milligram pill just hours before the shooting. Now, that is very interesting that supposedly he was taking a once a week time release dosage of 90 milligrams. I've never heard of an SSRI that you take once a week. Once so a week? very, yeah. very conflicting information here. Take then, it with a milligram of salt, people. Right. Just think about it. So Deborah had also been saying that the murder was probably due to the amount of sexual abuse that ECL was experiencing at the hands of her ex-husband. She told the Houston Chronicle that that in combination with the increase in Prozac might have driven her son to kill his father. But in the case file for this found online, it's clear that this marriage was toxic from the beginning, clearly on both sides, really. Doctor, and here's a quote, Dr. Rick Lostra and Ms. Deborah Geisler were married on June 16, 1989. Almost from the beginning of their marriage, Lostra and Geisler verbally and physically abused each other to the degree that peace officers were called to their home on more than 20 occasions, resulting in the arrest of both spouses at varying times. And this is a rich family. She was a nurse. He was a doctor. They were, you know, had a lot of money. Still happens. It still happens. On January 21st, 1994, Geisler gave birth to ECL, their first son, KL. Appellant's brother was born two years later. Deborah Geisler testified that during their marriage, Lostra was arrested seven times. And she said that ECL was present on all but one of those occasions. And moreover, that both children had witnessed several instances in which their parents were abusive to each other. Oh, Interestingly, yeah, those poor kids. I mean, seriously. Just everything they're seeing. What she leaves out is that how she was arrested as just as many, if not more times sure. as yeah. her husband was. So those last two bits of information were pulled from the actual document of the court case, which we're going to put a link to. Because, I mean, it's it's awful that someone lost their life. It's awful that a young person's life was irreparably damaged. And, you know, he's I believe he's still serving time. He was been trying to get different trials um, or retrials. It kind of disappears. Now I'm wondering if money has entered the picture because you really can't find anything recent. On I'm sorry. This. So this boy gets convicted of killing his father? Yes. He got convicted of killing his father and he went to the Texas Youth Authority. Whoa. Right, right. But aside from the sadness of it, it's worth reading this trial transcript and description because the kind of fights they had with each other were like maniacal toddlers, like throwing food at each other, screaming matches, chasing each other with weapons around the house. I mean, clearly, if that's true, because now mm -hmm. there's only one person alive yeah, of course. To, to verify any of that. And they're not um, going to have testimony from the kids. Right. But very interestingly, after the death of Dr. Lostra, his divorce attorney, who really, really was supporting him through this whole thing, came out very strongly that her client was an upstanding individual and was at the ends of parental alienation syndrome that Deborah had been trying all sorts of tactic and including the sexual abuse allegations they did a full investigation and there were never any charges. There was never any evidence to support that at all. Wow. There was just none. Mm -hmm. And she said, I think that she has poisoned this child's mind from the time I've been involved with this case. And that was January 2002. So prosecutors decided to close the case and not accept charges against 
Richard Lostra for the alleged sexual abuse. And this was due in part to that all the contradictions back and forth in statements given and the lack of any consistent evidence to support charges being filed by Deborah. So there was an attempt there to engage in parental alienation syndrome. Clearly something was going on that I think may be lost to history or if the younger son ever is able to speak up or if ECL, who is now an adult, Mm-hmm. Will ever, ever be able to come forward and and say what was happening? But Do even you so, if if Deborah any charges were filed against her for the the firearm being accessible, I couldn't find any of that. I couldn't find any of that because it's just. I mean, it's a fascinating case, but it was just at that time I think before everything was getting put yeah. online. But yeah. if I can find more, we'll bring it into what is going to be a really great get vocal. So, yeah, another story. example oh of gosh. just brutal, brutal and poor parenting. Yeah. Well, and uh, so let's just I mean, we could give both parents the benefit of the doubt here, but let's say this was just a toxic relationship. They were shitty to each other, even in the presence of the children where they're both getting arrested. There's some intimate partner violence happening. If somehow that child gained access to the gun. And then your 10-year-old goes out and is so impacted by what's been happening between you and your husband or ex-husband that he murders his own father, then comes back into the house. I mean, horrific for everyone. You know, I'm I by no means are we saying that like she's out there like looking out the window, oh, did he do it yet? Or like she sent him to do it. This is just awful, like it's, all the way around. It's ugly all the way across. It's just yeah. ugly. Yeah. Hmm. Great, well, great uh, huh. thing to end on, right? In our Always. very long episode. We're really good at ending <laughs> on such uplifting notes. So parental alienation syndrome may not be a syndrome, but... <laughs> it's <laughs> a thing, not, but it's not like, a thing. Yeah, but but the behaviors exhibited by parental alienation can be criminal. They are abusive. However, there might be some stuff that doesn't rise to the level of it being criminal in the sense that it's arrestable or prosecutable. But we can obviously see it can cause lasting trauma and damage to families. So the alienating parent really, you know, I think we've learned here today can create this alternate reality for their child, creates an environment of total control for all the reasons we sort of went over. But many times it's projecting their own anger on their ex-spouse or partner and results in some of these things we talked about. Yeah, I I think you really nail it on the head there. I I would add that the child that is dependent and what child isn't dependent on the caregiving parent when they're dependent on the alienating parent, they the child can not always but can take in the accusing alienating parent's view and internalize the belief that the other parent is to be loathed or feared less of a person, like just a horrible person. And while I think that there are many factors generally that contribute to this particular issue, for the alienator, it is about winning and losing while employing any means to an end. And ultimately, a parent-child relationship is irrevocably harmed, if not totally destroyed with mm-hmm. long-lasting implications on the child's development and into mm-hmm. adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think with this episode, I, I kind of said it before, but with certain syndromes and certainly other ones that you and I have covered, it begs that question as to why do we feel the need to pathologize everything? You know, it's 
it's just very dangerous territory when we want to slap labels on every behavior. Right. And they're probably just stemming from other already existent issues or disorders. Like the DSM doesn't need to be any bigger than it already is. <laughs> well, you and know? that's something us as psychologists, we can fall into. Like I do a lot of diagnosing throughout the day. And I was in my own therapy going through something that was really challenging to me. And my therapist, who's also a psych, he's trained as a psychologist, but but licensed as an MFT. And he said, whoa, 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 can we just talk about the behaviors? You're really good at defining very quickly what point A, B, C, and D meet a criteria for a diagnosis. But do we is that important right now? Yeah, right. What's important is the behaviors and how you feel about it and how you're going to manage this. Right. I was like, oh, shit, that's a really good point. You know? Yeah, that is. That's what I love about my job is we're really not forced to sort of document a diagnosis. You know, it's not like we're taking insurance or anything. So I feel like I don't have to even though I'm holding it in the back of my brain, I don't have to like work in those parameters necessarily. And I can just kind of work with the person with where they're at that day. Right. And it's nice. It's yeah. nice. But can you tell us more about this Get Vocal we're going to have this weekend? Yes. Our plan is to have a guest on who is a dear friend of mine, Ms. Virginia Gilbert. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Los Angeles. She's a very well-known writer with a wonderful, really well-regarded book on high-conflict divorce. And I thought that she'd be great to come in and comment on this particular issue And maybe we'll have some examples to talk about and people will have questions about, you know, how do you navigate certain things or what that's like? Because it certainly is a a niche, you know, it is a a, a niche specialty. And I think her insights on it are are brilliant. Well, God bless her for picking this niche because I couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you, Sarah, again, for the, the suggestion of this topic. I know this probably will hit people far and wide with just their experiences of divorce and alienation or separation or whatever you want to call it from children or even adult children and might bring up a lot of things, but um, it's it's definitely pervasive and I hope we lent some insights. So yeah. All right, Dr. Scott, we'll wrap it up and we'll see everyone next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Right. Bye guys. Bye folks. Take care. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.